Good morning, Bridge. Wow, you guys came to praise the Lord today. That was amazing. I was standing back in the wing. I wish you could oh, experience what I was experiencing, hearing you praise the Lord and the praise team. We could just go home right now. But I worked too hard this week. So we're not going to do that. Hey, I want to celebrate something with you. You know, this past week we had our vacation Bible camp. And uh, we had 147 children here at our vacation Bible camp. We had 52 decisions for Jesus Christ. Is that great? I I tell you, it was great. I thank Carol, and I want to thank everyone who volunteered to serve in our Vacation Bible Camp. Matter of fact, I want to recognize you. If you were a volunteer last week in Vacation Bible Camp, would you please stand up? Wherever you're at here, everyone, all the volunteers, yeah, stand up. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for helping the bridge be the bridge to these beautiful children. A span across the gap of where they are right now to where God has created them to be. Thank you. You made it all possible. And I'll tell you, I couldn't be more excited about reaching boys and girls for Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to go on with our series this morning called Kids Stuff for Adults. If you're a guest, all this is is that we are revisiting stories that we teach our children in Sunday school and in church, but then often never visit again as adults. And so we're revisiting those stories so that we can look at them from an adult perspective. Last week, we looked at the story of Ruth. We talked about how to handle hard times. I wish I had time to recap that because there's some important information there. If you missed last week's service, go back and get a CD at a resource table or go online and listen to it online. Important, important message from the book of Ruth on how to handle hard times when they hit. Now, The book of Judges ends with a pretty startling message. It's an Old Testament book, and it says this in Judges 21, 25, the last verse of that book says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. If you have a new uh, King James version, it might say everyone did as they saw fit in their own eyes to do. In other words, there was chaos. There was anarchy. Everyone was running around doing what they wanted to do. That was kind of the, the theme of the book of Judges. Remember that when we studied Judges last summer, we we discovered that Israel was in this perpetual cycle of rebelling against God, and then God would send some foreign entity to, to kind of chastise them, and then they would turn their hearts back to God. God would send them a judge, a leader, and that judge would lead them in a conquest over that people. But as soon as that would happen, they'd go right back to their old ways, and they'd start rebelling against God again and worshiping other gods, and then they'd get in trouble again. God would send another foreign agent against them to turn their hearts back, and it would just over and over and over again repeat this. Now, they're still in this same kind of a cycle. And apparently, when it says everyone was doing as they saw fit, it wasn't just talking about the people, talking about the priesthood, too. Because in 1 Samuel... It says this, Eli's sons, 1 Samuel 2, were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord. Now, I got to stop there and tell you who Eli is. Eli, at this time in the nation of Israel's history, is like their Aaron. He's like their chief priest. He's the leader of the religious element of Israel. And he's got two sons, and they're priests too. And the scripture says of them that they had no regard for the Lord. It says, now Eli, who was very old, heard everything his sons were doing in all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. These two guys 
were extorting the people of Israel. When they would come with the sacrifices that under the Mosaic law they were required to make, they were extorting the people and not following God's prescribed procedure for the sacrifice, but they were extorting the people to either give more or to give a better sacrifice than they were even uh, called to give. And they would say, if you don't do it, we're not going to give your sacrifice to God. And as it says, they're sleeping around with the women volunteering at the church. I mean, things are really going bad. Everyone was doing as fit in their own eyes. Samuel now is kind of the next judge, and he kind of is a bridge between the time of the judges and the time of the prophets that are going to come to Israel now. And God is going to speak through the prophets. So in this time, everything is really topsy-turvy. There's anarchy. There's spiritual rebellion going on in Israel. Now, this sets the stage for the next kid stuff for adults, and that is Raiders of the Lost Ark, the real story. You remember the series, the trilogy Raiders of the Lost Ark? I saw every one of them. I loved them. I thought they were great. But this is the real story of Raiders of the Lost Ark. You ready for it? All right, here we go. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. Again, once again, Israel had rebelled against God. God now raises up the Philistines against them. Said the Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. So they go out to war against the Philistines now. And about 4,000 died. Now, to put that in perspective, since we started in 2003, the war in Iraq, we've lost about 4,400 military personnel. Israel lost that many in one day in battle. And so after the battle, verse 3, when the soldiers returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord bring this defeat on us before the Philistines? They go back and say, what happened? Why did God allow this to happen? Now, somewhere along the line, after they process this, someone comes up with this great idea and says, let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, remember, is to Israel a very, very important symbol. It's a very important religious symbol to them. It symbolizes God's presence with them. God ordained exactly how the ark was to be constructed. He told them everything to do was to be overlaid with gold. Inside the ark were three elements. There were the, the, the stone, ten commandments. There was the rod of Aaron, the chief priest that budded. And there was a jar of manna that God used to, to feed Israelites during their wilderness wanderings. The ark of the covenant would go before Israel when they moved from place to place. And when they set up the tabernacle and later when they built the temple, the Ark of the Covenant would be in the most holy place, the holy of holy places in the tabernacle or in the temple. Once a year, the chief priests of Israel would go into the holy of holy places to offer a blood sacrifice and would sprinkle the mercy seat that was the top of the Ark of the Covenant with the blood of an animal to pay homage or to ask forgiveness for all the sins of the nation that they didn't know they committed. Now, all during the year, they had to offer sacrifices for committed sins, but this was for the ones no one knew they had committed. 
And so it was a precious, precious, powerful, powerful presence of God. In fact, at one time when they're transporting the ark, it began to teeter. And so one of the priests ran up to stabilize it, and the priest was struck dead on the spot. And so this is the ark of the covenant. Now it says, so the people sent to Shiloh, and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty, who's enthroned between the cherubims. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. When the ark of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. So after this humiliating battle where they lose 4,000 soldiers in one day, the elders come up with the idea, let's bring the ark of the Lord. So they bring the ark of the Lord from Shiloh. And when it comes into the camp, all the soldiers start rejoicing and celebrating and shouting and screaming so loud that literally the ground is shaking underneath them. goes on to say, 1 Samuel 4, 6, Hearing the uproar, the Philistines ask, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? I mean, they're hearing the exact opposite of what they expected to hear. They had just trounced Israel in battle. They're expecting moaning and crying and weeping and all this despair. And all of a sudden, they hear this party going on in the camp of the Israel. And they say, what in the world is going on? What's this about? And so apparently, they must have sent out some spies. Because it goes on to say, in the latter part of verse 6, when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp, they said. We're in trouble. Nothing like this has ever happened to us before. They say, woe to us. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They said, these are the gods that struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the desert. They knew about the God of Israel. And now he's in the camp. And they are totally, totally petrified. What are we going to do now? There's a God in their camp. And so Israel now, the whole thing flips over. And from all appearances, Israel now goes from being the defeated to being the superpower. The Philistines are totally, totally paralyzed in their fear. Now, someone from the Philistine camp, though, comes and rallies them and says, 1 Samuel 4, 9, Be strong, Philistines! Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So somebody comes up and gives a stirring battle speech. It says, come on, you bunch of wimps. We can't wimp out now. We got to be men. We got to be soldiers. We got to do our job. We got to go out there and fight, or we're going to become their slaves. So the next day, battle comes out. Boy, on one side, the Philistines, although scared to death because there's a God in the camp of, of, of the Israelites. On the other hand, they are pumped up on adrenaline because they're ready to fight. Israel's ready to fight. They got the Ark of the Covenant. And so another day of battle comes. So what happens? So the Philistines fought and the Israelites were defeated. And every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30 thousand foot soldiers that day. The ark of God was captured and Eli's priest's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, got killed during the battle. What the heck happened? 
Everything was in their favor. Their enemy was terrified. They had the ark of God. And yet they were humiliated once again in battle. In fact, this time, they had not 4,000 soldiers killed. They had 30,000 soldiers killed in that one battle. What happened? What went wrong? That's what I want to talk to you about today. Because this same thing can happen in our lives if we're not careful. What happened to them? In general, here's what happened to them. They lost God in their religion. They lost God in their religion, their religiosity. And they lost God in their religion by emphasizing ritual over relationship. Let me say it again. They lost God by emphasizing ritual over relationship. Now, what does that look like? It looks like this. First of all, they depended on human reason rather than God's word. What happened when they, when they brought back, after battle, they came back, and after they'd lost 4,000 men, they came back, and the elders of the city said, why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? Now, understand, the elders of the city would be like the city council, the city commission. It might be like the Congress. It might be like the Senate of the United States. They come back to these political leaders, and the political leaders start trying to figure out what happened. And boy, whenever political leaders get involved, you can be sure there's going to be chaos, right? And so that's what happens. So they come up with the plan to bring the ark back. Now, we got to ask the question, where is Samuel in all of this? Now, remember, Samuel now is kind of like the last judge that God had sent to the people. And he was the first prophet God had sent. In other words, Samuel now is the mediator. Samuel is the liaison between God and the people of Israel. But there is no record that the people went to the prophet of God so that the prophet of God could ask God what the heck just happened. Instead, the city council got together, the politicians got together and said, well, gee, what are we going to do about this? Why did God let this happen? Instead of asking God about it, they depended on their own human logic. And they said, all right, here's what we'll do. We'll bring the Ark of the Covenant in. See, that's exactly what happened. They depended on human reason rather than God's word. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 warns all of us when it says this, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. See, that's what they didn't do. They did the exact opposite of that. And you know what? Sometimes I do the exact opposite of that. And if you're honest, sometimes you do the exact opposite of that. Instead of going to God, you go to your own human reasoning. You go to human logic. You go to trying to either reason out or even rationalize what has happened in your life. Then they tried to manipulate God for their own purposes. First, they tried to turn to human reason instead of the word of God. And now they're trying to manipulate God. What did it do? Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant. That's their things. Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant, and it will save us from the hand 
of our enemy. Basically, they're saying this, let's get the ark of God in the battle, then God will have to give us the victory. See, because the ark's with us. The ark's in the battle, and that's, that's where God lives. And so God's not going to go into the battle and let us lose the battle. So therefore, let's bring the ark, and then God's going to have to give us the victory. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever tried to manipulate God? Have you ever tried to do that? Yeah, you have. So have I. It usually goes something like this in a prayer. We'll say, God, if you will do fill in the blank for me, then God, I will fill in the blank for you. Right? Some of you might have done that last night. You might pray, God, if you let me win tonight's lottery, then I'll start tithing. I'll start giving you 10%. I'll give you 10% of my winnings and I'll start tithing if you let me win the lottery. Boy, we'll do it in relationships. God, if you let me marry that person. God, if you let me have this job. God, if you let me do this. God, if you let me do that. God, see, what we're trying to do in all of that is we're trying to manipulate God to do what we want to do. And that's exactly what they did. We'll bring the ark in the battle. And if we bring the ark on the battlefield, there's only one logical solution. There's only one logical outcome. And that's is we're going to be victorious against the Philistines this time. See, they tried to manipulate God for their own purposes. Then they focused on a religious object rather than God. Now their entire focus is on the object. What's it say? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that what? It may go with us and save us from the hand of the enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty who was enthroned between the cherubs. What happened? <clears throat> when the ark of the Lord came back into the camp, oh, that changed everything. When they saw the object, when they saw the religious relic, then they shouted so much that the very ground shook. Notice that the Israelites focused on an it rather than on the he, on God. They focused on that religious symbol. The ark. Let's just take the ark in. And all we got to do is carry the ark and all the Philistines are going to fall dead. That, that's what they really believed was going to happen. Now, the ark was supposed to be a visual symbol to the nation of Israel of God's presence. But it was never intended to be a substitute for God himself. In fact, God told them that. Back when Moses was getting the law from God and setting it out from the Israelites as they're about ready to enter into the promised land. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 4, it says, For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. It doesn't say the ark is going to save you. It says it's the Lord God who the ark symbolizes He's the one who's going to give you the victory. But they focused on that religious object rather than God. They put their faith in some object as, that, as if that object was going to save them. You know, we have a 
tendency to do that in our day, in our culture too, don't we? We, 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 can, we can hope in religious objects. We'll put a saint on the dashboard of our car or carry one in our pocket, a medallion, or we'll have prayer beads or we'll have candles that we burn, thinking that if we do that, we wear crosses. You know what I've noticed that just amazes me? Is I'm watching TV, and I'll see somebody come on the TV, and they are the antithesis of everything God stands for. I mean, they hate God. They're vile. They're pagan. They have disgusting lifestyles. And yet they're wearing a What's that about? You know, like, what do they think that thing is going to do? They're wearing that cross while they're spouting out all this, all this horrible stuff because they believe somehow they have the cross on. And so the cross is there. And they're, it's like, you know, like the vampire movies, you know. <laughs> I love the vampire movies where the, where the vampire goes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, we, we, we think these symbols have any kind of power. See, the power is not in the symbol. The power is in the God that the symbols represent. And see, we better never forget that when we go into battle. Because we start holding out the crucifix and Satan's going to go. Just like he did to them. Focusing on religious objects instead of God is at best superstitious. But at worst, it's idolatry. It's putting that before who the symbol represents. They then even further complicated their situation when they expected God's blessing before repentance or without repentance. They should have known they were in trouble when the Ark of the Covenant shows up being carried into camp by Eli's two evil priest sons whose scripture had already said judges had no regard for God. They're extorting the people's sacrifices for their own gain and they're sleeping with the women volunteers of the temple. These guys bring the ark into camp. These guys are going to lead Israel in the battle with the ark. Man, the minute they saw that, they should have been renting their clothes and putting on ashes and falling on their face before God and say, not these guys. We're not putting our confidence in these guys. They didn't think another thing of it. Why? Because what judge says, everyone was doing as they thought right in their own eyes. So they had no problem with what these guys were doing. Even Eli, the chief priest, he, he rebuked them. He said, why do you guys do that? You shouldn't be doing that. Man, that's when a dad needed to come forward with a board and say, thus saith the Lord. <laughs> See, th- th- there was no going to God. There was no repenting of their rebelliousness against God. They expected God's blessing. Just because they were carrying a box of wood overlaid with gold onto a battlefield, they thought that was going to make all the difference. And all the rebellion, even among the priests of Israel, weren't going to have any impact on that as long as they had the symbol. See, We can't hold on to our sin and have a powerful relationship with God at the same time. You can't do it. You can't hold on to sin 
and expect to have the power of God present in our lives. It doesn't work that way. So what happened? They lost God in their religion. And they lost God by emphasizing ritual over relationship. And the same thing can happen to me. The same thing can happen to you. And it happens sometimes very subtly, kind of like that frog in the kettle. They just turn up the heat little by little by little. The frog doesn't notice it, and pretty soon the frog's boiled alive. Well, that's how it goes with us. Satan just gets us going off track and just turns up the gas little by little by little by little. And we get farther and farther away from God. And we continue to be religious. See, you're in church and you say, well, I'm here, God. I even sang a song. And we can, we can delude ourselves into thinking that our relationship with God is maintained by our religious ritualism. That's the mistake they made. And it was a drastic mistake. Now, now real quick, will you give me a couple more minutes? Because I, I, I want to give just a couple more things. That will result if we allow ourselves to fall into the same trap. Mark it down. When we lose God, bad things happen. How many will say, it's not good to lose God? It surely wasn't good to them on that day. I mean, when they lost God in their religion, they ended up losing the ark of God, the symbol of God's presence in their community. Not only that, but after that terrible second battle, another Benjamite runs home, and he tells the people about this horrible battle. And it says what? The whole town sent up a cry. Listen, when we lose God in our life, that's going to have a ripple effect on everyone around us. Dad, when you lose God, it's going to have an impact on your kids. Mom, when you lose God, it's going to have an impact on your kids. When we as believers lose God in our lives, it's going to have a ripple effect on our immediate family, our extended family, our coworkers, our friends, our schoolmates. It's going to have a ripple effect all around us. It's going to impact them. That's exactly what happened here. See, later, Eli hears all this crying going on. He calls this guy over and he says, what happened? And the guy says, oh, the Israelites had a terrible, terrible defeat, and the army fled before the Philistines. He says, oh, by the way, your two sons are dead. And he says, and the ark of God was captured. At that, when he mentioned the ark of God, which kind of is funny to me, one of the sons that did this, but when he said the ark was captured, then Eli leans back in his chair, and he just can't believe it. He's in horror. And when he leans back, because he's a stoutly man, he falls over and breaks his neck and dies. By the way, God had prophesied because of their evilness that all of Eli and his sons and his family would all die in one day. God, God saw it coming. But not only that, his daughter-in-law, who was the wife of his son Phineas, was in the last stages of her pregnancy. And when she heard the news about all this, she went into premature labor and in labor, she lost her life. See, bad things happen when we lose God. Now listen, and it's not like God didn't warn them that when we lose God, bad things happen. 
God warned them as they're going into the promised land, back in the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 30, beginning in verse 15, God says this, see, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. In other words, God says, all right, right now, you have an option. As you go into this promised land, this path leads to life and prosperity. This path leads to death and destruction. He says, for I command you today to love the Lord your God. Not, not to get religious, not to be ritualistic, but to actually love God, to have a relationship with him. He says, to walk in his ways and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are about to possess. God says, two, two, two paths here. You make the choice. Now, he's honest with him, and he goes on to say in verse 17, but if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you're drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess today. God puts it right out there. Later on, the Apostle Paul says the same thing in his letter to the Romans. And he says it this way, Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. He says the same thing. Follow God, prosperity. Well, health. Rebel against God, follow the way of the world, the way of culture, destruction, death. Now, note, and we think, oh, well, God's pretty mean. He doesn't really give us a choice there, does he? You know, I, I don't think God is, is saying so much that if you do this, I'm going to do this. If you do this, I'm going to do this. I think God is just speaking about life in general a lot of the times. He said, if you follow the ways that I prescribe for you, I've prescribed them because they're going to promote your welfare. I don't prescribe them to make you slaves and obedient. He says, I, I tell you what to do because it's the best thing for you to do. And if you do it, the natural consequence of doing the right thing is going to be health and welfare. He says, on the other hand, if you choose the other way, and it's your choice, you can choose what path you want to go down, and you choose the way of the world and the way of culture and all that kind of stuff, I'll tell you where that ends up. Where that ends up is in the garbage dump. And it's not that I'm going to do it to you. You're going to do it to yourself by the choice that you make. When we lose God, Bad things happen. And when that happens, nothing can compensate for losing God in our life. Nothing will compensate for that. That's the worst thing that can possibly happen to us. Back in Samuel, as Phineas' wife, Eli's daughter-in-law, is giving birth, she's dying giving birth. And the ladies try to encourage her. And they say, don't despair, you have given birth to a son. Remember we talked about the book of Ruth last week, that the greatest thing in the world that could happen to, to an ancient woman was to have a baby, and to have a baby boy was the best of all. Why? Because then it would become the baby boy's obligation when his mom grows old to take care of her, to make sure she's taken care of in her old age. And so it was not just the birth of a son, it was a safety net for them personally. And so the ladies are saying, they're helping her give her, she goes, don't, don't, I know things are bad, but don't fret because you have a son. But look what it says, but she didn't pay any attention to it. Those words were not comforting one 
bit. Why? Because the ark of God had been captured. And so she named the boy Ichabod, saying the glory has departed from Israel. And the glory she's talking about is the glory of God has departed. Because the capture of the ark in the desert of her father-in-law and her husband, she said the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. There was nothing that would console her because God was lost. Nothing can compensate losing God in your life. David said it this way in Psalm 13, 1 and 2. How long, O Lord, will you, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Same thing, Psalm 89, 46. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? When we lose God, Ultimately, we lose a sense of God's presence and God's protection in our life. And because of our guilt and our shame, we sense that God is so far away and that every prayer that we offer is just falling right on the ground in front of us. And, and, and we will cry out. And if you haven't been there, I hope you'll never be there. But we lose God and sometimes we cry out to him. It's like God is a million miles away. Now, the truth of the matter is that God is not that far away. Our guilt has alienated us from God. Let me ask you a question. Do you have God in your life right now? Now, I'm not asking if you're religious. I'm not asking if you go to church. I know you go to church, you're here. I'm not asking if you serve in a ministry. Listen, you, you can do all the things in a church and yet have lost God. I tell you, a whole lot of people lose God in the church. Amen? Right here, in the church, people lose God. Or have you lost God in your religion? Have you lost that? See, you're in the church, but have you lost God in the church? Here's the antidote. Psalm 32, 3 through 5. David, after having sinned with Bathsheba, he says this, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Boy, when we lose God, it impacts us spiritually, impacts us emotionally, it impacts us physically when finally reckoning day comes. Here's what David did. And here's what I'll do. Here's what you should do. He said, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the what? Guilt of my sin. See, the truth of the matter is God never went anywhere. He's still there. The problem is your guilt makes you feel alienated from God. But God loves you. God still loved Israel. He still sent the Messiah through Israel. He still blessed Israel and restored them. And he loves you and he'll re-bless, he'll, he will restore you even if you've lost God in your religion. All you have to do is turn to him. Therefore, Psalm 32, 6 says, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. And the good news is God is still here. God is still here. Today, Hebrews says, if you hear his voice, do not harden 
your God. Listen, don't lose God in your religion. Let's bow our heads. How about you today? Do you have a relationship with God? Or have you come here today and have you had a religious experience? Listen, God loves you. And God wants far more than a religious experience from you. God wants a relationship with you. So today, as you've listened to this message and you've seen this horrendous mistake that Israel made as an entire nation and what can happen to an entire nation, well, the same thing happens to us individually. When we lose God by emphasizing ritual rather than relationship. So maybe you've been going through all the motions, but right now it's just dawned on you. Right now you're having an epiphany. Right now the Holy Spirit Spirit of God is saying to you, wake up. Yeah, you're doing a lot of good things, but but what are you doing to cultivate your relationship with me? Are you just praying to pray? Are you praying and then listening for me to respond back? Are you just reading your Bibles to to check off boxes and read the Bible through in one year? Or as you read the Bible, are you listening for the voice of God to speak to you through what you're reading? Are you just breezing through it? Are Are you embracing it? Are you feeding on it? When you sing songs, are you just doing it because that's what we do at that part of the service? Or or, are you allowing yourself to engage in relationship with God as you sing and praise him from, from your soul, from your heart, with all your spirit? Do you serve in a ministry of the church because someone asked you to do it? Or do you realize that by serving in the ministry, you're cultivating your relationship with God? See, God is about relationship, not religion. In fact, one day I think we'll find out that God hates religion because God loves people. And religion can draw people away from God. Don't lose God. Right now, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, don't harden your heart. Right now, respond to him. Do what David said. He said, I confessed before God my sin. And God then removed the guilt of my sin. God, I just pray today for every believer here who right now who has had epiphany today in this message and who says, you know what? I've got to get back to God. I need to get back to building a relationship with him and not just being religious. And I pray especially for any man or woman here today who has never entered into a relationship with you. It's all religion to them. They've never put their faith in Jesus Christ. They've never been adopted in your family through that faith. God, help us not to lose you through our ritual, through our religion, and especially help us not to lose you in your own house. Turn our hearts back to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.